This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. I'm sure this is on. Okay. Um, welcome to our, let's see, this is our third lecture of our summer term and I just want to announce that next week we will be hearing from our very own Sarah Chestnut. Her lecture is called The Gift of Not Knowing Yourself, Learning Alongside the Apostle Peter. So we'll be back next week for that. Excited for that. Um, tonight I want to start by reading you a short passage. Of course, this is, I'm giving this lecture. We're going to read from books. Um, <laughs> from Beezus and Ramona by Beverly Cleary. And this chapter is called Beezus and Her Imagination. Um, And Beezus and Ramona, in case you're not familiar with the series, Beezus and Ramona are sisters. Uh, Beezus is older. Her name's not really Beezus, it's Beatrice. But everyone calls her Beezus. And she's ten, and her little sister Ramona is only four. So Beezus and Her Imagination. Beezus and Ramona both looked forward to Friday afternoons after school. Beezus because she attended the art class in the recreation center in Glenwood Park. Ramona because she was allowed to go to the park with Beezus and play in the sand pile until the class was over. This Friday, while Beezus held Ramona by the hand and waited for the traffic light to change from red to green, she thought how wonderful it would be to have an imagination like Ramona's. Oh, you know Ramona, her imagination runs away with her, Mother said when Ramona made up a story about seeing a fire engine crash into a garbage truck. That child has an imagination a mile long, the Quimby's grown-up friends remarked when Ramona sat in the middle of the living room floor in a plastic wading pool she had dragged up from the basement and pretended she was in a boat in the middle of a lake. Did you ever see a girl with so much imagination? The neighbors asked one another when Ramona hopped around the yard pretending she was the Easter Bunny. One spring day, Ramona had got lost because she started out to find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. The rainbow had appeared to end in the park until she reached the park, but then it looked as if it ended behind the supermarket. When the police brought Ramona home, Father said, Sometimes I think Ramona has too much imagination. Nobody, reflected Beezus, ever says anything about my imagination. (laughs) Nobody at all. And she wished more than anything that she had imagination. How pleased Miss Robbins, the art teacher, would be with her if she had an imagination like Ramona's. Unfortunately, Beezus was not very good at painting, at least not the way Miss Robbins wanted boys and girls to paint. She wanted them to use their imagination and be free. Beezus still squirmed with embarrassment when she thought of her first painting, a picture of a dog with Bow Wow coming out of its mouth in a balloon. Miss Robbins pointed out that only in the funny papers did dogs have Bow Wow coming out of their mouths in balloons. Bow Wow in a balloon was not art. When Miss Robbins did think one of Beezus' paintings was good enough to put up on the wall, she always tacked it way down at the end, never in the center. Beezus wished she could have a painting in the center of the wall. 
Hurry up, Ramona, Beezus coaxed. Then she noticed that her sister was dragging a string along behind her. Oh, Ramona, why did you have to bring Ralph with you? <laughs> Ralph was an imaginary green lizard Ramona liked to pretend she was leading by a string. I love Ralph, said Ramona, and Ralph likes to go to the park. <laughs> Beezus knew it was easier to pretend along with Ramona than to make her stop. Anyway, it was better to have her pretend to lead a lizard than to pretend to be a lizard herself. Can't you carry him, she suggested. No, he's slimy. <laughs> when the girls came to the shopping district, Ramona had to stop at the drugstore scales and pretend to weigh herself while Beezus held Ralph's, Ralph's string. At the radio and phonograph store, Ramona insisted on petting his master's voice, the black and white plaster dog, bigger than Ramona, that always sat with one ear cocked in front of the door. Beezus thought admiringly about the amount of imagination it took to pretend that a scarred and chipped plaster dog was real. If only she had an imagination like Ramona's, maybe Miss Robbins would say her paintings were free and imaginative and would tack them on the middle of the wall. <laughs> when they reached the park, Beezus left Ramona and Ralph at the sand pile and feeling more and more discouraged at her own lack of imagination, hurried to the recreation center. I'm sorry I'm late, Miss Robbins, she said. That's all right, Miss Robbins replied. Get your paints and paper. Today everyone is painting an imaginary animal. An imaginary animal, Beezus repeated. How could she possibly think of an imaginary animal? As Beezus poured paint into her muffin tin and tacked a sheet of paper on her drawing board, she tried to think of an imaginary animal, but all the animals she could think of, cats and dogs, cows and horses, lions and giraffes, were discouragingly real. <laughs> I wonder if any of you identify with either of these characters. Maybe you feel like a Ramona. You are an imaginative person. You are creative. You can make up stories and pictures and melodies and screenplays and operas. I don't know. They just bubble out of you. And, and maybe you feel misunderstood by people in your life, people who maybe think you have too much imagination, maybe think you're childish, maybe think you're going to get lost or get into trouble and the police will have to bring you home. <laughs> But maybe you feel more like Beezus. You don't particularly think you have an imagination. The assignment to paint an imaginary animal, to paint anything, sounds just as overwhelming and discouraging to you as it did to Beezus. And really, really, let's be honest, someone has to be responsible and wait for the light to turn green before crossing the street. <laughs> what I think this story shows us is that whichever character you identify with, um, it shows us a little bit about how our culture tends to think about imagination. Even if we don't say this out loud, I think we tend to think that imagination is something that children have and that most of us grow out of. And if you feel like Ramona, but you are a grown-up, that can be embarrassing. You can feel like you have too much imagination. Um, you feel like you're interested in things that no one else seems to see. Um, but on the other hand, if you feel like Beezus, you might feel like there are a lot of imaginative and creative people around you and wonder, why don't I have an imagination? So either way, wherever you find yourself, you're welcome as we foray into the realm of the imagination, which is, this is a spoiler, it's a much bigger and deeper and richer and realer world than the kind of imaginary animals Miss Robbins is asking her class to paint. So I'm, I'm hoping that this 
I'm hoping that this lecture will be the first in a series and um, to start off this project of looking at the imagination in the Christian life, I um, am hoping to start here with a lecture of some definitions, kind of trying to get a better handle on what the imagination is, what does the baptized imagination mean, that kind of phrase gets thrown around Christian circles a fair amount. Um, and I think it's just because C.S. Lewis said it, so it fits cool, right? Just anything C.S. Lewis said, you can kind of sprinkle, sprinkle everywhere. Um, but what does it mean? What does it mean? Um, and what is the imagination not? Uh, what does it not mean or not merely mean? Um, so I'm not going to give you a very linear outline to set us up, but instead I would like you to think of this lecture as a foray, a walk in the woods. We'll take some trails as we find them, we'll also probably pass over some trails, some possible trails. We might retrace our steps. Um, We'll probably pause and look at a jack in the pulpit or some unexpected trilliums, startle some birds. Imagination, as, as you might guess, is a slippery fish. And it's, in fact, it's almost slippery by nature. It's, it resists analysis precisely because it's not analytical. Um, but we're still going to dive in right after it. Sometimes when you foray through the woods, forage through the woods into unknown territory, you get a little bit wet, which, incidentally, also happens when you get baptized. <laughs> How much you get wet depends on your denomination. (laughs) So imagination can make us nervous, just like talking about baptism can. Um, Imagination can make us nervous. So in a poem that C.S. Lewis wrote before he was a Christian, he um, was wrestling with the idea of reason and imagination. And he described the imagination as warm, dark, obscure, and infinite daughter of night. And we, we don't really like things that are dark and obscure. Um, and a lot of times the ideas that come to mind when we think about the imagination are, are, are questions like this. Isn't imagination just, just make-believe, play-pretend, um, daydreaming, making castles in the air? That's probably okay for kids, but come on, we're practical grown-up people. We have real, real responsibilities. Doesn't imagination just kind of like work without rules? It's just like dreaming. Um, It's wishy-washy, prone to emotionalism, relies on that dubious faculty of ours called intuition. Um, And at its worst, imagination is really unreal. It's escapist. It's about lies, right? I think that's a lot of the kind of language we find ourselves in the midst of when we think about the definition of imagination. Though those are all not definitions. They're... um, Intuited associations, which is the work of imagination, not of reason, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, but all of those are, are insufficient and, and, and really unhelpful. So we're going to sort of start over. So if you just Google the definition of imagination, you'll find it's the faculty or action of forming new ideas or images or concepts of external objects not present to the senses. So when I started talking about a walk in the woods, you all saw something in your mind's eye. Um, Are we in the woods right now? Were the woods immediately present to your senses? No, but still my words formed, however hazy, 
some kind of an image in your mind. And even if you don't know what Jack in the Pulpit is, when I say those words, you see something. Maybe you see a little fairy person. <laughs> Maybe you see an animal, mysterious animal. Maybe you, more correctly, see a quite weird flower. Um, and now those, those woods in your mind don't have any existence outside of your mind. I don't, my words don't have that power. Um, but they do correspond with real woods in, in some measure, right? They do have some correspondence with reality. Um, there are such things as woods and as trails and trilliums. And I hope that that image also opened up for you some associations and intuitions about how this lecture is going to be organized. Um, those, those woods in your mind are doing the work of a metaphor, which work I risk destroying if I keep breaking it down like this for you. It's like shining a policeman's spotlight into its face. Um, so we're going to move on. George MacDonald, uh, who was the 19th century writer who C.S. Lewis was reading when he said, uh, when he later described it as his imagination being baptized, he wrote a really helpful essay called The Imagination, Its Function and Culture. Great definition, definitional essay. Um, And he defines the imagination as that faculty which gives form to thought. Not necessarily uttered form, but form capable of being uttered in shape or in sound or in any mode upon which the senses can lay hold. It's our ability to think of things not present to our senses and then to give them a shape or sound, uh, something that our senses, our five senses, can grasp. Further, MacDonald also says that the imagination of man is made in the image of the imagination of God. God has an imagination. And unlike my imagination and my words that made an imprecise picture inside your imaginations, God's imagination and his word have the power to actually create reality. God says, let there be light, and there is light. So the world in which we live and move and have our being is God's imaginative work. MacDonald has a really beautiful little paragraph where he talks about this. He says, would God give us a drama? He makes a Shakespeare. Or would he construct a drama more immediately his own? He begins with the building of the stage itself. And that stage is a world, a universe of worlds. He makes the actors, and they do not act, they are their part. He utters them into the visible work of their life, his drama. When he would have an epic, he sends a thinking hero into his drama, and the epic is the soliloquy of his Hamlet. Instead of writing his lyrics, he sets his birds and his maidens a-singing. All the processes of the ages are God's science. All the flow of history is his poetry." So I could talk a whole lot more about this, and MacDonald and his disciples, Lewis and Tolkien, do a wonderful job of fleshing this out about how our creative abilities are many imitative versions of God's. Um, but what I want to really focus on tonight is that our imaginations are a faculty that we have that is part of the image of God in us, and that's present in every person. And this means that whether or not you think that you're creative or you're artistic, Um, you still have an imagination. It also means that, like every part of the image of God um, that is in us, our imagination is shadowed by the fall. It's distorted and broken by sin. All of our our faculties are, are disintegrated from each other. They don't work together, and they're also disintegrated and faulty within themselves. 
And I think that's a huge reason why we are quite, we can be quite leery around the imagination. It seems like maybe our reason, our intellect and rationality is safer and more reliable for knowing truth because it's, it has clear laws and, um, you know, it's kind of like math. It's easier to spot fallacies. Uh, it's maybe more controlled. Um, but that idea that reason and intellect are more reliable than imagination and intuition as a means of knowing truth is actually a fairly recent, when you think of the history of the world, fairly recent idea. Um, it's The way it's come to us in our culture is a result, really, of the Enlightenment-era bias that valued objectivity and the scientific method and a particular kind of facts as the basis of true knowledge about reality. Did you ever have... Um, worksheets in grade school where you had to distinguish whether a statement was a fact or an opinion. Did anybody have that? You guys remember those? Um, And the implication of that, right, is that the facts are things that can be proven. This is what real, I don't have an image for you, but real worksheets say this. Things that can be proven and uh, opinions are beliefs. Um, If the word believe is in there, it's an opinion, which is interesting uh, to say the least. Um, and those those worksheets are actually the result of sort of the lobotomizing of reason from imagination and the privileging of reason um, that was cemented, at least in our educational system, um, about 300-ish years ago, give or take. Um, so Malcolm Geith, who is a poet and a priest um, and a very good reader of literature and of poetry, um, he explains this sort of cultural influence that the Enlightenment has had even on our thinking today um, in this book that this condenses years of his work on on imagination and faith. This one's called Lifting the Veil, Imagination and the Kingdom of God. Um, But he explains this a little bit longer passage, but I think he explains this really well. Geit writes, Some philosophers of the Enlightenment thought that image and imagination simply clouded and obscured the pure, dry knowledge which they were after. The new philosophers and scientists had declared war on the imagination, and the consequence of that war was a kind of cultural apartheid. The entire realm of objective truth was to be the exclusive terrain of reason at its narrowest, analytic, reductive, atomizing, and the faculties of imagination and intuition, those very faculties which alone were capable of integrating, synthesizing, and making sense of our atomized factual knowledge, were relegated to a purely private and subjective truth. So we were left torn between an increasingly bleak reductionism, which gave us data but no meaning, and an increasingly dislocated and orphaned imaginative and intuitive life, crying endlessly for meaning but finding no actual purchase on the facts. So I think, I think we would all agree that, of, of course, the scientific method and empiricism are really, really useful ways of finding out true and real things. Um, they've given us really important things like vaccines and automobiles and chicken nuggets. Um, but to rely on those alone is impoverishing. And, um, and there's so much that our immediate senses cannot account for. And there's so much reality that scientific instruments cannot measure. And as Guy points out here, um, dry objective truth as defined without imagination and intuition um, can't really even do its whole job. 
So he explains this a little bit more clearly in another bit here. Um, it is the imagination which allows us to grasp the whole, the meaning, the pattern in what we perceive, to draw the lines that connect the dots, to glimpse the pattern that suddenly makes sense of disparate and apparently random things. It is by the forming and perceiving power of the imagination that the constant stream of data flowing into us through our senses is shaped into a tree, a mountain, a sunset, the face of our beloved. So imagination isn't just a legitimate means of knowing truth. It is, at its most expansive, our our means of knowing, period. It's the way we gather all of the things our senses are bombarded with constantly and also exclude the things that are irrelevant. Um, it's how we're all able to ignore the highway right now. Um, it's our integrative, integrative, this is a hard word for me to say, integrative faculty. It embraces and brings together disparate things. It also raises questions and possibilities. It's the source of the what if that spawns the scientific hypothesis. It's the meaning making faculty that allows us to interpret the results of any experiment. Um, and we, we have words for uh, when someone can't grasp the whole, who, when someone can't filter that constant stream of data, for, for people who sometimes mistake people for things and things for people. And we call that a processing disorder. It's, it's a mental illness. It could be a, a psychosis, even. There's something wrong if we don't have that faculty that brings everything together in a meaningful way. <clears throat> In um, his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton describes a madman who believes that everyone is conspiring against him. And he says, if you argue with a madman like this, it's extremely probable that you will get the worst of it. For in many ways, his mind moves all the quicker for not being delayed by the th- being delayed by the things that go with good judgment. He is not hampered by a sense of humor or by charity or by the dumb certainties of experience. He is the more logical for losing certain sane affections. Indeed, the common phrase for insanity in this respect is a misleading one. The madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. So Chesterton goes on with this illustration of the madman. It's it's like his controlling uh, metaphor for a huge part of his book. Um, But it's an illustration that I think is really helpful. And so I'm going to read... Uh, a little bit more right from the book here, and uh, we're just gonna we're gonna go down this side trail for a little minute. <clears throat> Chesterton writes, "The madman's explanation of a thing is always complete and often in a purely rational sense satisfactory. If a man says, for instance, that men have a conspiracy against him, you cannot dispute it except by saying that all the men deny that they're that they are conspirators, which is exactly what conspirators would do." His explanation covers the facts just as much as yours. Nevertheless, he is wrong. But if we attempt to trace his error in exact terms, we shall not find it quite so easy as we had supposed. Perhaps the nearest we can get to expressing it is to say this, that his mind moves in a perfect but narrow circle. A small circle is quite as infinite as a large circle, but though it is quite as infinite, it is not so large. A bullet is quite as round as the world, but it is not the world. There is such a thing as a narrow universality. There is such a thing as a small and cramped eternity. The lunatic's theory explains a large number of things, 
but it does not explain them in a large way. So the madman here has lost humor, charity, understanding gleaned from experience, sane affections. All of those things are in the purview of the imagination. And later on, Chesterton claims that um, a lot of scientific materialists, scientists who would not agree, would not believe that there's any immaterial reality, um, any supernatural reality, uh, do the exact same thing. He would say that they rely only on re- reason and ex- empiricism, and they end up losing their sane affections. They don't have a way to measure, he says, things like the real things of the earth, fighting peoples or proud mothers' first love or fear upon the sea. If someone says, I love you, is the statement a fact or an opinion? If someone says, God is good, is that a fact or an opinion? And you shouldn't actually answer those questions. You should question those questions. Because the choice that they offer is too small for the realities that they're claiming, that the statements are claiming. And I, I realize that, that probably none of you are such reductionists. Um, you actually do believe that love and goodness and fear and evil exist in reality, and they're not just chemicals releasing in your brain and synapses firing. Um, but, but even though you may not subscribe to a materialist worldview, the need for the reintegration of both our fallen reason and our fallen imagination is true for all of us. Um, and guess what? Imagination as the integrative faculty is going to do the heavy lifting. Um, McDonald says this about that. Um, He says, The main purpose of the imagination is to inquire into what God has made. It is aroused by facts, nourished by facts, seeks for higher and yet higher laws in those facts, but refuses to regard science as the sole interpreter of nature or the laws of science as the only region of discovery. In finding out the works of God, the intellect must labor, workmanlike, under the direction of the architect, imagination. So we're going to pivot a little bit here because I think, well, these are all important things to have on the table when we're talking about imagination. I think a more urgent question for us is the question about castles and the anger. Okay, maybe part of the imagination is our integrative faculty, connects the dots, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. But isn't a lot of the imagination just fantasy, just making making things up? Um, and the short answer is no. <laughs> the imagination is not just the same as fantasy. And we, we use those words interchangeably sometimes, but I think it's really helpful to distinguish them. Um, but before that, I, there's something I really want to explicitly say, though, though we, I have touched on it already. And that is that though the works of the imagination... They might involve inventions like wardrobes that lead into other worlds or, um, I don't know, cherubim. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, that's not an invention, but the way that this author has invented them is an invention, um, describes them as an invention. Um, but And the imagination also works with the non-literal or the symbolic, metaphorical, intuitive Um, even though the imagination is working with all of these things, the works of the imagination have to do with the really real, whether physical or metaphysical real, whether material or immaterial real, natural or supernatural real, however you want to say that. And, And the imagination also doesn't like that or. It doesn't like that I set those up as 
dichotomies, natural and supernatural, or supernatural. Um, the imagination is actually quite interested in where those connect and where those heights and depths come together and helps us to see where those worlds interact. It wants to give shape, which is a material thing, to immaterial thought, immaterial reality. So about 200 years ago, a little bit more than that, um, the romantic poet Samuel, Samuel Taylor Coleridge did a lot of work through his poetry and through his philosophical writings um, to think about imagination and how it works and how it is an antidote to the extreme rationalism that he was facing in his, in his day in particular. Um, and in his introduction to the lyrical ballads that he wrote with William Wordsworth, he wrote that the goal that the, uh, of their um, project, writing these poems, was to excite a feeling analogous to the supernatural by awakening the mind's attention to the lethargy of custom and directing it to the loveliness and wonders of the world around us. An inexhaustible treasure, but for which, in consequence of the film of familiarity and selfish solicitude, we have eyes yet see not, ears that hear not, and hearts that neither feel nor understand. So Coleridge and Wordsworth were acutely attentive to the beauty of the natural world and to their own emotions and their own being in that world. And they were also attentive to the reality of God. Um, But they were also really aware of how easily we fall into routine and self-interest and habit and, and fail to notice the wonders, even the material wonders that are all around us all the time. Um, and Coleridge was, he was, Coleridge was a Christian and, and he believed that the world is the work of the imagination of God um, and that the job of the human imagination, like MacDonald would articulate uh, in the definition I read a few decades later, is to inquire into what God has made. And what God has made is not just the material world around us, even though that is of itself, as Coleridge says here, an inexhaustible treasure, well worthy of our attention. Another thing I want to be really clear about is that um, the fact that the imagination deals with the really real doesn't mean that non-Christians can't produce works of imagination. That that should be self-explanatory, but I want to make sure that I say that clearly. Um, it's part of the image of God in all humans. Um, and so imaginative work by both Christians and non-Christians can awaken our mind's attention to the things that we've become accustomed to um, and can direct us to the loveliness and wonder of the world, remove that film of familiarity and selfishness and help us to really understand truth about reality. Um, all of us, tend to get stuck, like Chesterton's madman in the small, circular room of our own heads, um, our own experiences. And imaginative work is expansive. It opens windows in that room. And and the gift of imagination to all people means that anybody can open those windows, potentially. Okay, getting back on the main trail again. Um, what is the relationship between imagination and fantasy? What is going on there? So in an article um, that I read uh, that uh, does some really good close reading of the McDonald essay I've been referencing, the author kind of summarizes some of McDonald's ideas by saying, when forms are new embodiments of old truths, we say they are the product of the imagination. But if they are mere inventions, however lovely, they are the work 
of fancy or fantasy. And this, this seems like a simple enough explanation, but I don't find it quite so simple because the works of the imagination and the works of the fantasy can look quite similar. Like they could both, for example, involve invisible or talking animals. Um, so to clarify that a little bit, imagination has a play pretend, make believe side that in children especially is an essential practice for the real exercise and development of the imagination. And so here I'm calling it the incipient imagination, the imagination in an early stage. And it can look like fantasy only. It's just play. It's mere invention. Um, But the pretend lizard on the end of the string and the care that Ramona takes of it later on in the chapter, I didn't get to this part, but she says, don't step on Ralph to Miss Robbins. Um, This is practice for the real nurturing work of caring for a real pet, um, which is work that takes humor and charity and the integration of experience and affections, all of these things that stem from our imagination. So by making believe, uh, the incipient imagination can grow into full-fledged imagination and, and leave the nest, as it were. Um, and there's a real, real appropriateness for this kind of growing up. Um, children play with dolls, which is a, work, a creative work and of the incipient imagination. And grown-ups are parents of children, which is an incredible work of creativity and courage and imagination. Imagining what what does this little person who can't talk yet need? What do they want? What what is happening? Let me imagine. They might be hungry. So in contrast, mere, mere inventions, though they can be lovely, can also really easily be hollow and shallow. Soap bubbles can be just as shiny as diamonds, but only one of those things can cut concrete. So uh, fantasy tends to involve a lot more consumption than creation. A former Labrie worker and director um, from the English Labrie, Andrew Fellows, gave a lecture called uh, Fantasy Versus Imagination um, that I commend to all of you if you're interested in kind of looking at that difference in more detail. He, he argues that pop culture, a huge amount of our pop culture and entertainment is designed to feed our fantasy, not our imagination. And Disneyland is a really good example. A trip to Disneyland can't, can be a lot of fun, um, but what it's really offering is experiences and stuff to consume, not windows into the truth of reality. The windows in Sleeping Beauty's castle don't let you see out. They let you see a backlit, beautiful drawing that somebody made. Um, The water on the Jungle Cruise is real, uh, but nothing else is. Even the jokes are all scripted, and even the water is highly chlorinated. (laughs) And so while while a trip to to the theme park or listening to a pop song or playing a video game or watching a reality TV TV show isn't necessarily bad or unhealthy... um, we, we do get into trouble if we start mistaking consuming fantasies for exercising the imagination. And too much of that kind of consumptive uh, relationship with fantasy forms really bad habits in us, I think. Um, and Andrew Fellows, in his lecture, he draws some really helpful contrasts between fantasy and the imagination. I'm drawing on his work really heavily here. Um, 
He talks about how fantasy substitutes a representation for the real. So in other words, the goal of a fantasy is to make the image as real as possible. And that, that's why a lot of works of fantasy are often um, sexually explicit or really violently graphic, because it needs to be as real as possible. Um, but it can also be a painless world where all the machinery is hidden. Um, no one has ever died at Mr. Walter Disney's version of the world. Some of you heard that story a few weeks ago, where he calls it Mr. Walter Disney's version of the world. <clears throat> so in contrast, imagination doesn't confuse the representation with the real. It actually celebrates its role as something that you, not, you don't only look at, but you look through. Um, a work of art that appeals to the imagination often will leave a lot to the, uh, to the audience's imagination. It invites that creative participation, not just passive consumption. So mere inventions can be lovely, but they can also be insidious, I think. They can also be downright lies. Fantasy feeds our desire for instant gratification, easy experiences, removes the restraints of reality um, so that we can do and be anything we want because fantasies don't resist our um, manipulation or, or what we want. And uh, you probably don't need me to tell you that this is actually really bad for us. Um, some, some examples of where this can go are some of the advances in VR and virtual reality, some of the metaverse stuff. We had some conversations about that last term. Those are works of fantasy. And, and probably the most obvious example of insidious fantasy is pornography. And the result of consuming fantasies, especially if we exclusively consume fantasies, is that we find ourselves consumed and shrunken. But on the other hand, works of the imagination enlarge us and fill us. And they, even, even if they might at the same time painfully bump us up against reality, because then they, by doing that, they reorder our emotions <coughs> and reveal the truth that freedom is not the absence of limits, but is found within limits. And uh, that's what any artist of the imagination will tell you. They will be so excited about the constraints, even if it's really hard to work with the constraints of their genre or their medium. And they, they value their their audience as participants to serve rather than consumers to exploit. Works of the imagination offer us a room with a view to the real. It points us beyond ourselves. It allows us to reach out. Contrast Mr. Walter Disney's version of the world with Chesterton's interpretation of some of our most well-known fairy tales. He says, There is the lesson of Cinderella, which is the same as that of the Magnificat, Exaltavit humilis, the humble be exalted. There's the great lesson of beauty and the beast, that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. There is the terrible allegory of the sleeping beauty, which tells how the human creature was blessed with all birthday gifts, yet cursed with death, and how death also may perhaps be softened to a sleep. So besides fantasy, which is what I was calling imitation imagination, it's cheap imitation, there's another potential dark side to imagination. And I'm calling this the shadowed imagination. Probably someone smarter than me has a more, um, a better term for it, but I'm calling it the shadowed imagination. And like all of our faculties, like I said earlier, our imaginations are fallen 
and can be bent towards immense evil. Some acts of violence, not all acts of violence, but some acts of violence, like the carnage of 9-11, for example, or a lot of the mass shootings that have happened in our country, are acts of the darkened imagination. So like acts of the rightly ordered imagination, they're symbolic and they reveal something. But instead of making, instead of finding out the works of God, they destroy the works of God. And that's maybe an extreme example, but but similarly, reductionist ideologies like materialism, or talked about nihilism, just about just about any of the other isms you can think of, are works of the imagination, but often imaginations that are just too small. Um, a bullet is just as round as the world, but it is not the world. And we might think, well, okay, I don't have anything to do with that. That's not me. Um, but on, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about sins that we thought were primarily external actions, murder, adultery. They actually begin internally, despising someone in your heart, lusting after someone in your heart. Surprise, that's your imagination. <clears throat> Not even big sins like that. Fear, anxiety, failing to trust God. So often that's the fruit of our imagination. We're asking what if, not to make something, not to find out something exciting and new, but to worry about it. <clears throat> Michael Card, uh, who is a Christian songwriter and performer, um, who's really big in the 80s and 90s in particular, in this book that's called Scribbling in the Sand, Christ and Creativity, says he defines the imagination this way. The imagination is the bridge between the heart and the mind, integrating both, allowing us to think and understand with our hearts and feel and emote with our minds. Through the use of images, metaphors, stories, and paradoxes that demand our attention, it calls for our interaction. But what if the stories and metaphors and images that we allow to shape our hearts are shadowed? And we we all have shadow stories in our hearts then that disintegration continues. Our imagination is meant to be, is made to be our creative faculty living and moving and breathing in the light of the reality of God and his image in us. But the shadow imagination moves in the darkness that lies and steals and kills and destroys. And if the light within us is darkness, then how great is that darkness? But what if, what if the imagination is given light and air? What if it's given water? We've rambled all over the woods. Hope you're still with me. Um, And we've arrived back where we started. So like all of our faculties, our imagination needs to be redeemed and reconciled to God, its source and its fountainhead. We need him to awaken it, to remove that film of familiarity and selfish solicitude. We need our imagination to be baptized. <clears throat> so um, when C.S. Lewis read George MacDonald's Fantasties as a teenager, he wrote later about that experience. Um, this is where we get the phrase baptized imagination from. I'm not going to read this whole passage here, but this is kind of his whole description of the experience where he's kind of struck by how 
the world was strange, but also familiar and homelike. It was like a dream, but he felt awake. Um, he felt like it was the morning, but also felt death. He says that's where the baptized, that's where the death came in was with the baptism. So he says here, right at the end, what reading this book actually did to me was to convert even to baptize, that was where the death came in, my imagination. It did nothing to my intellect, nor at that time to my conscience. The quality which had enchanted me in George MacDonald's imaginative work, works turned out to be the quality of the real universe, the divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic reality in which we all live. Do you believe that the, un- the real universe we live in is divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic? The work of the imagination is not to lull us into dreams, but to wake us up to this reality. So I started off this lecture by reading from a children's book that offered a limited, but not an untrue, picture of the the imagination. Beezus does have an imagination, whether she thinks she does or not. Um, But what I hope I've offered is... Some, is to show you that the imagination isn't something that we grow out of. It's something that we grow into. Um, I'm going to read now, just don't don't panic, but from three different stories in which grown-ups, and some of them are quite old grown-ups, they find their imaginations kindled or confronted in reality open to them in new and deeper ways. The first one, it's going to be a little a little strange if you don't have any context at all, but I'll try to give a little bit. It's from Madeline Lengel's book, A Wind in the Door, which is her sequ- a sequel to her more well-known Wrinkle in Time. And in this passage, the main character, Meg, is trying to figure out how to bring her new friend, who is a cherubim named Proganoskis, and yes, the singular article with the plural cherubim is correct in this book, <laughs> a cherubim named Proganoskis. She's trying to figure out how to bring him to school so that they can help the demon-possessed principal. And yeah, this is the kind of science fiction that Lingle writes, okay? So she she had a lot of imagination. Um, actually, like, you should read the whole book. It's, it's a trip. Um, (laughs) it's wild. Yeah. Um, more wild than, uh, Wrinkle in Time, even. So she's trying to figure out how to get the cherubim with her to the school. She says, okay. I can get to the grade school all right, but I can't possibly take you with me. You're so big, you wouldn't even fit into the school bus. Anyhow, you'd terrify everybody. Proganoskis, the cherubim, says, Not everybody is able to see me. I'm real, and most earthlings can bear very little reality. So sure enough, once they get to the school, they succeed after a long, arduous uh, trial to release Mr. Jenkins, the principal, from the demons. Mr. Jenkins has a little trouble with so much reality, and he actually faints. And then when he comes to, he's sure he's dreaming, or worse. So he's facing Meg, this cherubim, and then some other angelic beings that have shown up, one of which is a snake. It's confusing. But uh, there's one called the teacher, and he says to Mr. Jenkins, You, sir, do you wish to return to your school and continue your regular day's work, or will you throw in your lot with us? Mr. Jenkins looked completely bewildered. I'm having a nervous breakdown. The teacher said, 
You don't need to have one if you don't want to. (laughs) You have simply been faced with several things outside your current spheres of experience. That does not mean that they, we, do not exist. I don't want to cause any nervous breakdowns here, so we'll leave leave that book alone. Um, And the next passages, I hope, are a little bit closer to our own experience. This one... This one is by a pretty obscure writer named Elizabeth Gouge, that's, and it's called The Dean's Watch. The Dean has... <laughs> the best. <laughs> Yay! I just finished a book club on it. <laughs> it has Lenny's endorsement, okay? Um, it's a very good book. And the Dean, uh, uh, the title character, he's the head of a cathedral in, the, in, a, in a cathedral in the English Fens, and um, he's been this, in this job for many years. He's made a lot of really great... Um, changes in the life of the city. He's transformed the city in a lot of ways. But even though he's done so much good work, he's really found very little joy. Um, until uh, he's, he's married to a woman who doesn't love him. A lot of people are afraid of him because he's very powerful, so he doesn't really have any friends. Um, but eventually, he, towards the end of his life, he makes some friends with uh, some very young people and some very poor people. And uh, when he's interacting with a very poor um, minister, let me see, where am I starting here? He has this sort of moment of um, awakening. He says, who could have believed that all these things were there beneath the crust of things? Life had taken on a strange richness since Mr. Peabody had sidled like a terrified crab into his study, had lifted the thin gold shell of his watch and shown him the hidden mechanism inside. Until Until now, life for him had meant the aridity of earthly duty and the dues of God. Now he was aware of something else, a world that was neither earth nor heaven, a heartbreaking, fabulous, lovely world where the conies take refuge in the rainbowed hills and in the deep valleys of the unicorns, the songs are sung that men hear in dreams. The world that the poets know and the men who make music. The autumn song of the robin could let you in, or a shower of rain, or a hobby horse lying on a green lawn. <clears throat> and the last paragraph I'll read to you here. It's from Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, and if you're not familiar, the narrator is an aging pastor in a small town in Iowa who's writing uh, a very long book-length letter to his young son. Right at the end, he says this. It has seemed to me sometimes as though the Lord breathes on this poor gray ember of creation, and it turns to radiance for a moment or a year or the span of a life. And then it sinks back into itself again. And to look at it, no one would know it had anything to do with fire or light. That is what I said in the Pentecost sermon. I have reflected on that sermon, and there is some truth in it. But the Lord is more constant and far more extravagant than it seems to imply. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. Only who could have the courage to see it? There are realities that are not immediately present to our senses, or often even present to our emotions, 
are not are not not present to our attention. Um, but there's a really real world all around us. If you've been baptized, do you realize that you are an actor? You have acted out, like millions of believers before you, the great drama of the reality of God's redemptive work. You have given form, embodied form, to this great thought. I'm going to read from Colossians. This great reality that in Christ you have been brought to fullness, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. You might think of your baptism as the first scene in the drama of your redemption, even though, of course, the whole play is as long as the story of the world. And just like imagination, baptism isn't something that we grow out of. It's something we grow into. Um, In his book, The Sacramental Life, David DeSilva writes, when we were immersed into water as adults or had water sprinkled or poured on us as infants, Whether we were immersed into water as adults or had water sprinkled or poured on us as infants long ago, the baptismal life summons us to spend the remainder of our days applying this immersion to ourselves, becoming now in actual practice those new creatures who have risen from the waters of death. Martin Luther wrote that in baptism, every Christian has enough to study and practice all his life. He always has enough to do to believe firmly what baptism promises and brings. Victory over death and the devil, forgiveness of sin, God's grace, the entire Christ, and the Holy Spirit with his gifts. And with what part of ourselves are we to study these things all our lives? Luther is not saying, after baptism, every Christian should go to Bible classes and learn the theological definitions of each of these things listed. Even though that might be helpful. Might be helpful. Um, No, he says study and practice and believe. And for that, we need our integrative faculty, the part of us that bridges the heart and the mind and the body. And so it makes a lot of sense that the beautiful prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesian church is a prayer for their imagination to be equipped for this work. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The eyes of your heart your imagination we followed a lot of a lot of trails through these woods um, and I hope that there's been at least something that your imagination has caught hold of Um, just to kind of recap a little bit we've glanced at some of the insufficiencies of materialist rationalism or mere intellect and some of the insufficiency of fantasy Um, We've glimpsed hints of what is really real, including some of the very important truths about the image of God in all of us, the shadow of the fall, the reality of the supernatural. We've skipped a couple stones across the deep waters of baptism. And I I hope, yeah, that there's something there that you've caught. The possibilities of going further up and further in into all of this are vast 
And there's a lot of imaginative work to be done here for you and for me. Towards the end of his chapter on the madman's circle, um, I'm going to end with this. Chesterton offers us another symbol, and this is what we'll finish with here. As we've taken the circle as the symbol of reason and madness, we might add, and fantasy and any other reductionist way of being, we may very well take the cross as the symbol at once of mystery, we might add, and imagination, and health. For the circle is perfect and infinite in its nature, but it is fixed forever in its size. It can never be larger or smaller. But the cross though it has at its heart a collision and a contradiction, can extend its four arms forever without altering its shape. The circle returns upon itself and is bound. The cross opens its arms to the four winds. It is a signpost for free travelers. I'm going to end there and open it up for questions or discussion. I've just giving you a lot of things. What was the name of the book that Lane's so excited about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, here. Here we go. The Dean's Watch. Yeah, so the... Isaac Peabody is a watchmaker. Yeah, The Dean's Watch by Elizabeth Gouge is the second from the bottom there. Okay. You can borrow it from me right now if you want it. I wouldn't offer that to everyone. So welcome to share if there's like you don't have to have anything profound to say about it, but if there was something that did catch your catch your eye as we were wandering through the woods. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I guess more of a curiosity on so Lewis, because you kinda had the one quote from the Beth has imagination. Mm-hmm. Has there been anything where he kind of connected that initial like understanding of Beth has imagination to his own works of imagination as like expressions or um, you should ask Linny that question. <laughs> so I'm refer to her. <laughs> yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. He, he talks a lot about um, the fact that he feels story is a much more effective evangel- evangelistic tool mm-hmm. than just um, sort of dogmatic or didactic um, reason ideas mm-hmm. about. The imaginative work of a story does catches people off guard, in a sense. Mm-hmm. and yeah, it, it it gives them a picture, which is mm-hmm. what uh, it says. Reason is uh, reason is the organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. Mm-hmm. Is the organ of what? Meaning. Oh, meaning. Imagination. Yeah. Meaning. Reason and truth go together, but the, magic, mm-hmm. the meaning for that truth is, and story gives pictures. Mm-hmm.
Let me see if I've got it here. I yeah the the brief quote I gave of the poem that he wrote even before he was a Christian um, I'm not going to read the whole thing right now but um, he's talking actually about reason and imagination He's he wants them to be reconciled that's like his call so the end of the poem he says oh who will reconcile in me both maid like Athena uh, reason and mother um, imagination who makes who make in me a quarter of the depth I can't read this, I'm sorry, it's my own writing. <laughs> who will reconcile in me both maid and mother, who make in me a conquered of the depth and height? Who make imagination's dim exploring touch ever repeat the same as intellectual sight? Then could I truly say and not deceive, then wholly say that I believe. This is before he was a Christian, but um, I think later on he came to realize that faith was what integrated those two things um, in himself. <clears throat> Yeah, Marty. I, I have to confess, I find that there's so much in the Bible and in Jesus' teaching that mm-hmm. is metaphorical, that mm-hmm. is, there are allegories, stories, metaphors, and I think my own educational background, in a way, has been a stumbling block mm-hmm. to, to, being a, to being able to really grasp those. That, mm-hmm. kind of, that kind of imaginative language, and yet mm-hmm. the fact that so much of the Bible is that mm-hmm. is, 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 should say something to us yeah. <laughs> about yeah. the importance of imagination, the importance of the kind of work we have to do to make this, those connections, understand mm-hmm. what, you know, what Jesus meant by, right. by some strange putting together. Mm-hmm. You know, were you going to say something? I, I just remember some of Rookmarker's lecturing saying that so what you were saying that the enlightenment has done this to us, separating fact and mm-hmm. and he's saying we, know, we will never uh, we need to learn from scratch what it means to love the Lord with all your heart mm-hmm. he says now post enlightenment we know that the heart is a pump mm-hmm. how do you so we can have the pump, and then you add a metaphorical ingredient on top of the pump, mm-hmm. and see and think you've got what the Bible is saying. Love it, mm-hmm. love it, love it all your heart. You don't. Mm-hmm. We've lost it. We yeah. need to fight through to pull these worlds together, and mm-hmm. that, it's a sort of classic romantic tension mm-hmm. that comes up all over the place. Yeah. Of, of reason versus imagination, mm-hmm. and, and uh, his call was that we need to. Um, get back into biblical thinking in a way mm. that gets us into the pre-modern in a way, but we yeah. can't just do it by gazing at Rembrandt paintings and <laughs> rock. It's a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those can help, though. They can help. <laughs> they can help. <laughs> a lot of worse things you could be listening to or looking at. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's that's a really good... Um, yeah, a really good point. Um, since I've started thinking about this 
um, more intensely. I mean, I can show you from a distance. Like, this is my markup of Ephesians. That's all the places where I see language of imagination. And we don't think of Paul as the most uh, poetic writer of the Bible in the Bible, right? But um, yeah, I, I really think that that prayer there is, you know, is an example of that. Um, yeah, if you start tracing like all the places the Bible talks about light and being enlightened, he's not talking about the enlightenment, <laughs> the endarkenment. Um, they're talking about like real light that, that comes into our hearts, which is our core, our center. Yeah, the middle of ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's real value in just like sitting and reading a book, mm-hmm. like that is going to open your mind, or like listening to music, or just going out and enjoying God's creation, which is like one of the best ways to mm-hmm. expand your imagination and open those windows. And mm-hmm. it's such a fight because like there's just always like there's the next thing to do. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're really right. Utilitarian. Right. I think that's true. Utilitarianism, one of those other little circles that you can find yourself in. Um, yeah, there, there is so much pressure to... Yeah, to do and um, a lot of imaginative work comes from being. One of the most helpful things that a professor told me in grad school, um, which can be really hectic and all about like deadlines, um, uh, she explained that like if you're thinking about your research project, you're working on it. <laughs> you know, like if you're in the car and just happen to be like thinking about it. You're pre-writing. And that just, like, blew my mind. I mean, it seems really obvious, like, once you say it like that. But I thought, like, no, I had to be outlining to be pre-writing. But when I was commuting, that was actually some of my best working time. But it looked like I was doing nothing but commuting. Um, To realize, like, because then my mind would just go places that wouldn't have if I was stuck with my books, you know, in in my desk, at my desk. So even in terms of work and production, like actually that space is is good and is helpful. <clears throat> yeah, Marissa. What was that verse that you quoted? Um, is that? Oh no, it, it was in one of the Gospels. Um, is that light is the light within you is darkness? Yeah. I just put it um, I didn't. I didn't put the reference down because actually, 
I did look. It's in Matthew. I did look it up later, but I don't remember. Mm-hmm. There's another hand somewhere. Yeah, Ben. I was I've, um, often described the imagination in nowhere near as much nuance as, as this. This is really wonderful. Thank you. Um, but just just doing a similar thing in a sense, trying to dispel this idea that it's just about the imaginary. Mm-hmm. It's really a much more fundamental human capacity that we have for mm-hmm. envisioning anything that isn't immediately in front of us. Right. And, uh, which is just how we think. I mean, yeah. It's just like you can't think without, mm-hmm. <laughs> without an imagination. Um, but I found really interesting in, in this talk the, the idea of the imagination as an integrative capacity mm-hmm. that's actually not just providing images of what's not in front of you, whether it's imaginary or just or factual, which is not in front of you, mm-hmm. uh, but actually something that ties you back into the world of facts and, and something mm-hmm. that maybe you just said something about, you know, it's, it's, the imagination is, is a capacity that's used even in the course of an experiment or, mm-hmm. you know, coming up with a hypothesis or coming, it's, it's, um, so that helped me to, to see just that there's a lot of the distinctions we make are really false distinctions. Mm-hmm. I'm just, just thinking about um, the what, what everybody seems to say, which I think is true, that the more the more someone engages in creation, the more the more their imagination awakens. Mm-hmm. And well, why is that? Engaging in creation is going out looking at the facts, mm-hmm. you know, of the world, and yet. Um, can be spurred on to do that mm-hmm. because your imagination, because you you can so you, mm-hmm. you can picture before you go out that there's something out there to discover and, and, mm-hmm. and it grabs you and you want to go yeah. and see. Um, and uh, that's really that's really helpful and interesting to me because that's because that's um, mm-hmm. it helped me make sense make sense of that. That yeah. uh, spending time in creation isn't just um, cold fact gathering. Right. It's, yeah. it's actually um, it is engaging with facts, but it's also it's also fanning your imagination mm-hmm. by, just, just by being exposed to what's there. Yeah. Right in front of your senses. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Christopher. Uh, just to build on that, mm-hmm. one of the things that was really fascinating with hearing from some of our friends who have been through very like uh, science. Uh, graduate level programs is how much pressure in their like research groups or how much the language around what they do with the data is driven by this uh, language of story so mm-hmm. they're pushed and they're, they talk about in their lab groups like what is the story that this data and observation is telling yeah. and that's exactly what so we're talking about mm-hmm. and the, I mean yeah that the the language of the imagination of how they're interpreting, analyzing, and making yeah. sense of the data coming out of the instruments yeah. is all driven around what story are you telling? Mm-hmm. It's another way of saying, like, what do these numbers mean? Right. Yeah. Right. 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 But it's actually acknowledging mm-hmm. what we're doing. We're trying to make a story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Really yeah. And I think um, Malcolm Geick points this out, um, not particularly in this book, but in an interview I heard of him. He calls the Enlightenment, like, the really strong enlightenment kind of severing of the two as a blip in human history. He's like, we'll get over it. <laughs> Basically, like it's not, it doesn't work. Like it doesn't work for very long because 
it's not how we work. It's not how um, how our minds work. And so, um, so I think that's why I think actually our our greater danger in our moment now is the danger of mistaking fantasy for work of imagination. Um, and because I think it, when it's made clear that, like, no, we can't even reason without imagination, I think that can be clarified quite easily, but I think the muddiness between what is a work of fantasy and what a work of, is a work of imagination is, is kind of the more, um, is the bigger danger for us right now in this moment. Yeah, Sarah. Mr. Do you, do you have more thoughts on that and on um, how do you know when you're like, oh man, I just, I just slid, <laughs> slid down from imagination into fantasy or I'm, 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 you know, drowning out hours of my life in fantasy rather than feeding my imagination. Or, mm-hmm. or I think of like, Literally listening to audiobooks for mm-hmm. hours, hours on end. Mm-hmm. You know, like, is is the distinction in the quality of this of the substance itself? Is it in the disposition with which we engage it? Is it both. I think you gave you know, yes. Great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it seems like you could be escaping into fantasy with the best works of literature yeah. that should be feeding your imagination mm-hmm. and moving you toward some kind of, I don't know what, like deeper engagement with your own life, mm-hmm. but you are actually stepping away from your life somehow. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, I would say more in our culture today, I mean, it's got to be in line with, with reality. You know, mm-hmm. The hard truth of this is what is, you know, to, to use your imagination to say there is no real definition of what a human being is and I can make a human being whatever I want it to be. That's that's where our culture is going. Right. And that's that's the that's the huge big danger is that we mm-hmm. can you know, because we start from ourselves and just create a new mm-hmm. you know, who we are and what we're here for and, and all that. Mm-hmm. I, I think when you've got, you know, Real story and people that you know are not, um, that that kids that all good stories mm-hmm. are really helpful for children yeah. to have in their heads to, mm-hmm. to give them examples of how people react to things mm-hmm. yeah. and even if it's you know even if they can fly the kids know they can't fly mm-hmm. so you know mm-hmm. but it's 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 still talking about aspirations and it's okay yeah I think I think um, that's true and I think it does have to do both with the substance of of the thing but it could be so like to say audiobooks are all you know works of fantasy that's not true depends on the book Um, and um, and same with film Um, I would I haven't really developed this, and I, I think Lewis does a really good job in his experiment in criticism, which I referenced a lot in the lecture about listening um, how to read a story that I gave a couple terms ago. Um, in that, he talks a lot about what kind, like how, how we should judge literature, whether it's good or bad literature, is not necessarily it's not from based on some like arbitrary list of rules 
uh, that literary profs have developed, but it's rather what kind of reading does it invite? Um, and really what he's getting at there is does it allow, does it exercise our imagination or does it exercise our fantasy? Just building, he calls it cloud castle building. Don't be put off by that title, it's a fabulous book. Yeah, and it's very readable. It's very, very readable. Um, an experiment in criticism. But I think it offers us a really helpful rubric also of, of any kind of media that we would mm-hmm. engage with. Yeah. Um, I don't know how it is for you, but I know in my experience, I can immediately tell by how I feel mm-hmm. after I read it. Like, I feel shrunken <laughs> when I've just, like, binge-watched stupid YouTube videos for an hour. <laughs> I'm like, what, did I, what just happened? I like come out of this like fog. How is it an hour later? Versus when I've engaged something that engages my imagination, it inspires me to create things and like do something with it. Um, I think what you just said is really key there that it inspires you to to act in some way. Like the example of listening to audiobooks with kids, like they'll use those images and stories to play. They're going to do mm-hmm. something with it. They're right. going to explore with the like stories and images, mm-hmm. and in some ways, when we're working with our imagination and we're engaging through it with the real world, like that's going to change us, mm-hmm. and we're going to act and and think or live in different ways. Yeah, I wonder if the difference is the the questions that it leaves you with. I was struck by the contrast that you brought up between. Disney, the Disney version of fairy tales and the original version mm-hmm. of fairy tales, because they're the they're the same storyline mm-hmm. essentially, and yet one leaves you really with profound questions and profound themes, and one leaves you with sort of warm fuzzy um, mm-hmm. fluff. And I wonder if that is the difference between imagination and fantasy is the the type of question and the type of um, the type of um, material to ponder that yeah. you that you have in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I do want to clarify. I'm, I didn't want to say that all Disney films are not are all works of fantasy. I think I think some of the stuff is amazing work of imagination that actually can open our open a window into reality. Disneyland, in particular, on purpose is <laughs> is by design. <laughs> A fantasy world. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Marty. Um, in one of Dick's books, he, ta- he quotes, um, I think it's George MacDonald, talking about the, the, the power of a story, of a good story, being so much, so much more powerful than a sermon mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to make goodness attractive. Hmm. And I mean, I think that's one of the you know thinking, thinking of the story, the kind of story you listen to can can make can make goodness and humanness either attractive or unattractive. Mm-hmm. And, and that seems to be one of the most amazing challenges to for people writing, for writers, mm-hmm. writers and stories, um, how to make goodness attractive. Yeah. And that, so that's. Interest too. 
And preach, yeah, preachers too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't give up on that. Don't give up on that. <laughs> no. Uh, but the, the other thing I was sort of going to say is, um, um, sort of off of what Ben said about about creation, about spending time in, mm-hmm. in creation. I remember reading, listening to an audiobook. It was actually Annie Dillard's autobiography, mm-hmm. and it was fascinating because she's one of the most the best nature writers mm-hmm. around, and writers in general. Um, mm-hmm. And she, as a little girl, her mother used to take her to the library, and she, she was the only one who ever took out this book. It was called Stream Life. And it was just all about the, the life, the incredible life in a stream. Mm-hmm. And then she would go to streams. Her mother would take her. But she just kept taking that book out, signing it out over and over again. She was the mm-hmm. only one who ever did it. Mm-hmm. But she'd go to... So, you know, little streams nearby, and mm-hmm. and it, it just completely fed her imagination, and her mm-hmm. her love for God's creation, and her imagination to be able to write about it in such amazing ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think um, our son Tim, who's who's a wildlife biologist and you know ornithologist, puts radios on birds and things, <laughs> is very much into and a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, very much into getting kids in in nature, getting mm-hmm. kids out of God's creation, and and just how it, it kills him. How many of his non-Christian colleagues love God's creation mm-hmm. much better than a lot of Christians who argue about um, what happened in the beginning and what's going to happen at the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we have to argue about about creation and evolution argue about the end times and yet seem to be completely unengaged with the glory of this incredible mm-hmm. creation that God gave us, which in my experience of, of um, like some nieces and nephews and and kids that I've known growing up, those who those who've really been engaged with the outside with the create with God's creation, they just have they've not gotten bored. Mm-hmm. You know, because it always leads to more. It's always, yeah. you're interested in birds. Well, there's mm-hmm. this un- infinite amount to learn about birds, and, and so much still mm-hmm. that we don't understand about migratory right. patterns, how to, or how a monarch mm-hmm. butterfly can fly all those miles mm-hmm. and, and go back to the, and the next generation go back to the same place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's insane. But if, that's, if that isn't exciting or exciting yeah. to your imagination, mm-hmm. I don't know what could be. Right. Yeah, and then that just all the out of you know looking at nature i mean that's that is where we get some of our best poems and and i and and just even the richness of language comes out of the metaphors that we draw from that and it's not a chain like just a coincidence that you know a family is kind of like a tree (laughs) it's actually because because there's one artist who Leaves <laughs> motifs all over the place, um, the same ones, um, and I think when you when you have the freedom to to um, to inquire into what God has made because you have a you have room for God in your imagination, then you, there's an incredible. I mean, it is it is that image of of the cross that can go yeah. infinitely. Yeah in either direction um, without losing its integrity at the center um, that I think 
is, is yeah, is just really powerful and, and generative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering something that you said with a lot of the conversation, you know, as we were talking about uh, kind of fantasy versus imagination and just that, you know, idea that kind of, you know, one creator with these themes, and, you know, like, I feel like even in fantasy, you know, there's glimpses, you know, some are more muted than others, but of that creator and of that creation of, you know, just the image of God, like, even in the YouTube videos, like, mm-hmm. you, you can find very, very muted images, so as, as C.S. Lewis was talking about, you know, this one opportunity of seeing this glimpse of imagination that kind of put to death his imagination and let him see in new sources, you know, I wonder if it's less, okay, we have to cut out all moments of fantasy in our life mm-hmm. and only to the imagination, but more of we need to really allow those true opportunities of imagination, whether they be, you know, Narnia or whether they be, you know, nature and outside, and really allow those to transform our interaction with fantasy when we encounter them. Because we're going to find yeah, yeah. We're going to get to an act of Disney world, but we can really see the beauty that's even in Disney world mm-hmm. for our other kind of imagination. There's a transformative power in there that's a lot deeper, I think. So. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think, um, and that's where the like growing in imagination um i think it's like it's like growing in grace right you're when you understand grace more you you forgive other people a lot easier right um when you grow in imagination you see it everywhere um even in very unlikely places um yeah and i I think that's where some of the um some of what Sarah was asking about is it the is it the attitude with which you approach something? Um, I think there is some of that. There are certain things that just aren't. They're just going to be dead ends. They are a tiny closed room, um, and it can seem like a very big room. It can be a, a room of mirrors that seems really big, um, but it's not. Um, but then there are other. Yeah, like you were saying. Hey, I enjoy Disneyland. I am not going to lie, but um, I used to live in Southern California. Um, and but there's there's also there's a there's a limit to it, right? Instead of yeah, but yeah, I think that is a helpful point that there there is an aspect of like what do you, what are you bringing in terms of what your what your eyes are open to see? Yeah, I'm just com- coming with the ability to to me it's tricky because sometimes to engage with good work it will stretch your imagination. You sort of you you the degree to which you have to. Surrender to it. You're entering mm-hmm. into something, um, but also not not at the expense of all your critical faculties. Right. <laughs> you know, like you, um, and to, to me, the coming coming with some of those critical faculties still intact, not just totally letting it wash over you and just and just just consume and don't even think about what's right. going on. But, you know, to me, that's you know. Um, is important. I mean, I mean, because because you could, I think you can approach a very very good work of literature that is written to stretch your imagination. You can approach it um, as just a consumer. Yeah. And, Definitely. Uh, and you're not actually really engaging with it in the way that it was intended to be engaged. Mm-hmm. For me, Disneyland was, was torture, um, <laughs> but I could sort of 
cope with it by by being really by being really critical internally. <laughs> look at this, people. I mean, come on. Look at, um, Your daughters. Well, even well. <laughs> because it's so it's so. Condescension. To, to me, it's, it's, it wasn't it wasn't just like superiority, but it was it was it was like this is. Um, we were there around Christmas time, where like the castles lit up and there's fake snow flying everywhere, and, mm-hmm. and there's this like this voice that gets piped through the loudspeakers that, bit telling you directly that to experience the magic of Christmas, you just need to remember those Christmases in the past that were so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like, literally, like the only hope of finding meaning right now is in nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Like, just go for it. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, I can't, I can't believe it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> something for everyone to consume. <laughs> and I think that's a really important attitude thing to check is, is my attitude one of consumption only or of creative participation? And what is this work inviting me to? Yeah. I mean, um, possibly, yeah. If they just want your money, then their work is a little suspicious, right? Um, yeah, so I think that's that's I think something to really consider. Um, what yeah, what image are they constructing of their audience? Who who are their who is their ideal audience? And do you want to be that yeah. or not? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think. yeah. I this is back of the pushing it back again. It strikes me. Some of what we're after makes me think of one word that I find helpful, which is wonder. Because mm-hmm. that can be experienced all across the board. Little things, big things, uh, stories, yeah. and so on. But the word wonder, to me, at least to me, connotes you're dealing with something bigger than you are. You're mm-hmm. suddenly seeing that something bigger than you are happening, or that has happened, or that is calling you to expand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems to me that, in that what you, as you described, the idea of something that leads you to wonder, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to just hey, that's cool or something like that. Right. It's yeah. uh, maybe a start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's related to the the earlier comment about what kind of questions does it leave you with? Because mm-hmm. um, there's that kind of wonder, and there's also wonder as in yeah. awe. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of something that I ended up cutting out in the interest of time. But in the Book of Common Prayer, one of the prayers in the order of service for baptism um, ends with this petition for the people being baptized. Give them an inquiring and discerning heart, the courage to will and to persevere, a spirit to know and to love you, and the gift of joy and wonder in all your works. Which I think is just amazing that that's like that's part of being baptized is 
to grow in wonder, the gift of wonder. Mm-hmm. I think I think we'll end it there. Um, you're welcome to continue talking amongst yourselves. But.